I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show how you feel good we good good you good as good as i can be Woo! see that's what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) i was watching though it was not as bad as it could have been so many so many so many damn books Hello and welcome to Hi there. this episode of So Many Damn Books, episode 52. Episode 52, um, our second birthday-ish. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And in the damn library today, we have Kathleen Donahoe, uh, author of Ashes of Fiery Weather. Um, thanks Hi. for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Welcome. Um, Kathleen, uh, you were raised in Brooklyn in a family of Irish-American firefighters, um, you've published short stories in several literary magazines and currently serve on the board of Irish American writers and artists and you live in Brooklyn. I do. I'm still here. Good. Yes. <laughs> We're so glad you're, you're gracing us, uh, with your presence in the library and in the city. Um, and also we, you were just saying you work at the, the botanic, I work uh, at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Yeah. I've been there for about five years. Cool. Which is, it's crazy to me. It seems like just yesterday, but yeah, I work in the office. It's the horticultural department. So ordering seeds and uh, taking care of invoicing and billing. Nice. I know. Wow. It's a nice place to be. That's very cool. It really is. Yeah. When the words aren't growing, at least the garden is. Exactly. Right? Okay. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you like it because as I was saying, I didn't like it. Uh. <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys what we're drinking. Oh, yes. Um, I'm calling it the O Brooklyn, which is an Irish take on the Manhattan, um, which is it's just two ounces of Bushmills, one ounce of Antica uh, Formula Sweet Vermouth, and just some orange bitters. And you stir that in ice and then pour it into a coupe. That's I've it. I've never had a, a Manhattan or Manhattan-esque drink with Irish whiskey. Now I'm wondering why I've never done that before. Yeah, it's super smooth drinking. It really is. I have trouble drinking straight whiskey, which maybe is heresy to say, but I don't really. <laughs> More of a beer drinker. I don't really drink straight whiskey, but yeah, this is really good. I appreciate yeah. it. Kind of a, this is a really nice flavor, really strong flavor. You can still taste the whiskey, which is good. Yeah, but, but it's it not overpowering. That, like, bourbon thing mm-hmm. where exactly. you're just like, hey, now you're drunk. <laughs> I'm doing shots. How old am I? Why am I doing shots? No, it's not like that at all. It's very smooth. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm a, I like this drink. Go home and, you know, pause this and order all those things and make it at home. Yeah. Then come back. Yeah. 
Uh, rate us on iTunes and listen to <laughs> yeah and uh, listen to us tell you what we bought Drew you want to start us with what you bought uh sure I have picked up two things recently um one from our fine friends at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt uh they were very gracious and sent me a copy of the best American science fiction and fantasy oh, 2016 cool. uh, that Karen Joy Fowler was the guest editor for this year. And as she points out in her introduction, you would not expect her to be doing like a science fiction fantasy. And yet that's thing. her background. Yeah, that's where she got started, which I didn't know. I thought that was very cool. Um, and the other thing is 50 Feet of Trouble by Justin Robinson. It's out from this tiny press, Candlemark and Gleam. Uh, and they, the story is basically that sometime during World War II, something went wrong. And now movie monsters uh, have sort of come to life and are real. And this is a PI in Los Angeles, sort of like Raymond Chandler style. Uh, but he's he's dealing with some supernatural stuff as well as some real stuff. Whoa. That sounds crazy. Kathleen, do you want to talk about what you bought? What I bought recently, most recently, I bought Beloved because I have never read it. Me neither. I'm going to read it next year. Yeah, I never read it. And I just, I've been thinking for a while, that is a book that I need to read. I Mm -hmm. really need to read that book. And then when I'm on my way to work in the morning, I kept seeing this license plate that said Beloved, 66 or beloved some number and then i finally decided this is a sign i gotta buy this book it's time mm-hmm. it's time to buy this book and then i bought a book i've read before it's called the um the many lives of greta wells i believe if i'm getting that right andrew sean greer it's a very good book like i said i've already read it so it's about this woman who's grieving the death of her twin brother from aids mm. and she begins to go to shock therapy treatment for uh. depression and begins to travel to different parallel universes of her own life it's not time travel exactly she's going to different eras but she's herself in each era huh it's really fascinating Hmm. and i read it and i really liked it but it's one of those books that the more i thought about it the more i realized that it's i think brilliant i really do yeah um i bought uh joan didion's white album um nice Mm. i found like a pocket edition and i immediately had to buy that it was a dollar and I was really excited. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to be, that. My, that's going to be my first Didion. I haven't read her before uh, as a I book. that's I've the seen right some place essays, to start. But I've never read her like from cover to cover. So I'm excited. Yeah, I haven't either. Let's switch over to your book, Kathleen Donahoe. Um, Ashes of Fiery Weather, out now. Will you, you're probably the best person to tell us what it's about, <laughs> um, since you are the one who know it pretty inside and out. So why don't you tell us, uh, give us an overview. an overview. It is about um, six generations of women from a Brooklyn, New York City family of firefighters. And it goes through time. It travels, um, each chapter is a different protagonist. I prefer to say protagonist and not narrator because I just think that the, the novel is about all of them together collectively. So each chapter is about a different woman who are a member of the same family with one exception, a woman who is not a relative, but she's connected to the family. So that's basically it. It's about um, 
their history in Brooklyn being part of this uh, firefighting community. What's, and what's the earliest year it, it goes to? The earliest year it goes to is December 1897, New Year's Eve. When I, when I read that description, I, I personally thought, oh, I'm going to get, you know, the 1960s as told by somebody and like the 1980s as told by somebody. <laughs> but that is not how this works. It's actually, no. you'll, you jump around in time within one of these narrators sections as well. Yeah. And so I was sort of curious, is this how the story came at you or is this many starts at different ways of trying to get into it and realizing, you know, talk about the genesis of, of the format. The format. Interestingly. Yeah. Initially it began as a short story that I wrote in 2003 and it was my first attempt to write about September 11th. Because if you remember how it was in the first months afterwards, is anybody ever going to write about this? How how do you even approach this as art? Yeah. How do you create something out of what happened? And that was my, my question. And I was probably only a couple of months afterwards. I was watching um, the news, as we all were constantly. I was watching Tom Brokaw. I was on some kind of panel where he was being interviewed. I'm not sure. And somebody must have asked him a question about that. I don't remember the question, but I remember his answer. And his answer was basically, yes, art is going to come out of this. He goes, look at Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And everyone said that about Pearl Harbor. And then, you know, you had films and books about it. Of course, it's going to happen. So it was like two years before I even tried. I wrote the short story. And it, jumped, it did jump around in time. It was 2001 and then 1983. Mm-hmm. So that was the genesis of it, the, the time jumping. And it was really a way of, of being in two places at once um, without continuing with the same character to getting a different perspective on the two time periods. Mm. And so I just continued doing that. When I decided to make it into a novel, it was kind of the question I was asking was, well, whose point of view should this be from? This Is it from this girl who was at the time 10 in, in 2001 when her parent dies on September 11th? Or is it about her birth mother was actually the daughter of a Brooklyn firefighter who died in 1983. Hmm. So, but they weren't, that family obviously was not directly connected to September 11th, but of course it's there as a fire family. But what do, how do I approach this? And the thought was just to keep them separate, but within one book. Mm-hmm. It's cool to hear you say that the genesis was short stories, because as I started reading the book, I felt like that. The best, like... The best novels in stories are the ones that you feel like you could pull this thing out read it on its own and still feel like you got a, a full story. But then yeah. also when you put them together and you get to see the connections, there's this, this little thing that happens in your brain as you're reading. Like it's like pops. a, it's like when you uh, get like the piece of a jigsaw puzzle and you put it down and you're like, yeah, that's, there's the whole boat. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right, right. Oh, there it is. That's the pirate. Um, and then, you know, you're going to move to another section of the puzzle. Um, yeah, puzzle is a good analogy. It felt very much like that as I was writing it. You mentioned in in your biography, and, and uh, you were saying that you you actually come from firefighters. So, yeah. um, as as this is your your life adjacent, I guess getting the details was incredibly important. But it was also like at your at your fingertips too. So um, you said that this was your third novel. Yeah. Um, what made you decide, okay, it's time to talk about this per- very personal side? Yeah, it's interesting. Because the first two novels, um, I wrote one when I was in college, and that was a Brooklyn book too, but it took place in 1964, mm-hmm. which is more my parents' Brooklyn, 
My parents also grew up in Brooklyn, actually not far from where we are right now. They mm. were, um, my dad was in Crown Heights and my mom was in Prospect Leverance Gardens, although they did not call them by those names back then. <laughs> Basically, they used to go by the parish, the church. Oh. Um, so yeah, they didn't. They probably would not have said Crown Heights or Prospect Leverance Gardens back then. No, they didn't do the, yeah, the neighborhood um, thing. The Craigslist names of neighborhoods. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No. So they grew up right around here. My mom actually used to work at Kings County wow. uh, for a long time. Cool. Super and, close. Yeah, yeah, I know it's right here. And my great grandfather. Um, yeah. So that was that was my way of writing about Brooklyn. Was not to write about my Brooklyn, but this Brooklyn that it was sort of almost mythological, mm-hmm. the fifties and sixties. You know, and that's kind of what Alice McDermott has talked about. I know we'll get to that later, but has talked about also writing about her parents' Brooklyn because she wasn't raised in Brooklyn either. Mm-hmm. Which she wrote about the story she'd kind of heard from her family. So I. That's kind of what I did with the first one. And the second one was also very different. It took a much longer time to write. And it was also not at all. It wouldn't take place in Brooklyn. It was a small town upstate New York. And the story was completely nothing to do with anything in my life. Um, but this is not autobiographical. But, of course, it is obviously going to be informed mm-hmm. by my life and growing up in a family of firefighters. There are, there are six in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. My dad, his three brothers... And then my mother's sister also married a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And their son is a firefighter. That's my cousin. He's the only one of this generation. Oh, wow. I know. It seems to be dynasty is ending. So, yeah. So, there, what really inspired me to write about it was September 11th. Um, hmm. It was the impetus. And I think very quickly after I started writing the book, it went beyond September 11th. I mean, pretty much as soon as I decided to include all of the narrators, what I was saying before, like whose point of view, everyone, it very quickly obviously became about far more than September 11th. Mm -hmm. But that was the starting point. There's something interesting too, thinking about the book and realizing these things that have happened in the past that were the previous big one and the way that it, you sort of touch on the several big ones that happen over the course of the 130 or so years of this book. These fires that happened that were huge and that when you're reading them, you're like, wow, this is immense. This seems terrifying. This seems crazy. Yeah. And it's something I've never heard of. Never yeah. Heard of. Yeah. Right. Um, was that, did that come from, prior knowledge or did you like I got to get these two in there like or these few things in there as well uh interesting the slocum I knew about um my dad used, my dad is kind of like me he's interested in that sort of thing like these big horrible disasters that have been interested in knowing when and how and what went on so the slocum I, I'd always known about um because that was the um the boat that went on fire in 1904 mm-hmm. if I'm correct Mm-hmm. I'm, ring. I'm a few years removed from my research. So these dates are not <laughs> to top of June, uh, June 1904. So yeah, that was a big one. That was the most loss of life in a single event before September 11th. So that was very specifically, I knew I wanted to get that one in the book because that parallel seemed really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other fires I kind of came across as I was doing research, like the Windsor Hotel fire, mm-hmm. which burned down in um, 1899 during the St. Patrick's Day parade. I had never heard of that. Right. Yeah, which seems unbelievable. Like you were saying, how are these gone from our collective memory? Completely. Yeah, I mean, a hotel on Fifth Avenue burns down in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day parade, and no one knows uh, yeah, about it now, right? Yeah, I was struck by the fact that, I mean, this is a novel about firefighting in in some sense, mm-hmm. but 
the tension doesn't come from the conflagration of a fire ever almost right, um, right. It's in the background it's always in the background i was i was curious about writing these characters who live whose lives are always close to being torn apart right um keeping the tension yeah it's sort of because i know from being the daughter and niece of firefighters the everyday life is just totally normal yeah you don't think about it I didn't. It's probably different from my mother. <laughs> the more awareness of, you know, the actual danger of it. But he was going to work. You know, he would leave, be gone 24 hours. He was going to work. We had pizza for dinner because she didn't want to cook because it wasn't. And he once joked, like, you were home eating grilled cheese and I was having filet mignon at the firehouse. <laughs> <laughs> the guys cook, you know. Yeah, it, it's, it's this sort of um, push-pull between being aware of the danger and not thinking about it. It's hard to explain exactly how anybody could really do that, but that's what we did. It's what they still do now, I'm sure. And we went on a, a camping trip, a firehouse camping trip. We did it a few times. I was probably nine or so the first time we had a trip. And these two girls, three girl, two girls and a boy who were on the trip with us, and they were being supervised by one of my dad's friends who had been their father's best friend. Their father was killed at the wall bombs fire in um, 82. I think it was August 82. And that was at Ladder 156 in Brooklyn on 14th Street. And they were on this camping trip and he, Danny was supervising them and we were friends with them and hung out with them. And it was almost no real awareness that what happened to their dad could happen to mine in a flash, literally, mm. in a snap. It could happen any, any day that he's at work. But we didn't really dwell on it. It was just like, that's so sad that their dad died without any real dwelling on it could be us it could easily be us were there any um firefighting novels that helped you or things that you read that while or particularly interesting history books that you came across while you were doing research or getting ready to write it yeah there's one especially very good book uh terry galway wrote it it's g-o-l-w-a-y galway not galway like this county he's a historian uh he teaches at Keene college i believe in new jersey but he is also the son and son-in-law and i think nephew of firefighters mm -hmm. and he wrote this really good book um so that others might live it's a history of the new york city fire department from colonial times through september 11th and maybe shortly after the aftermath i think it was published a couple of years after mm. so that was a really wonderful book really great resource even though i did not go back to colonial times it was really fascinating to read the whole history of the fire department how it used to be a gentleman's profession which really made me laugh <laughs> <laughs> like oh well that changed and that did kind of change during um well when when the irish came in right in huge numbers and immigrated and, and began there was volunteer back then of course it was volunteer up until um after the Civil War, I think. So the Irish came in and kind of took it all over and got a completely different reputation, you know, kind of being wild and crazy and, you know, at, you know, at a hand, which is one of the reasons why they wanted to make it a paid department. Um, hmm. The insurance companies, just a crazy aside, the insurance companies um, were not happy with what they were paying in fire insurance because they were complaining that the firemen are punching each other out at fires, not putting out the fire. <laughs> <laughs> probably true, but... So that was one of the the motivations for making a paid fire department in New York City. And also, of course, by then, the city was densely populated and the buildings were going up and up and up and it was a necessary thing. But that was um, one thing if you read like in the archives, which is another resource of the Brooklyn 
Daily Eagle. A lot of articles about that. Wow. Uh, yeah. That was one thing I really loved as somebody who, when I first moved to New York, I moved to Manhattan and I maintained like a strong bond with Manhattan for a very mm-hmm. long time. And I moved to Brooklyn about six months ago and uh, reading the the scenes where the fire department gets consolidated into right. the FDNY and how they're talking about it as like the great mistake. Right. I great mistake of 98. That. I was like, this is this is so wonderful and it's like a little nugget of history about this place that I just moved to and so many of those like the the plane that crashes in Park Slope like right down the street from where I'm living right now oh yeah I used to live over there too and just it it's a really lovely uh, rooted telling of the story Mm mm-hmm Uh, let's pivot. Let's pivot. You pivot. The novel that you brought to us, uh, "Charming Billy" by Alice McDermott. Um, yeah, do you want to do a capsule synopsis? Yeah, do, do it. It uh, it takes place largely just after the death of this guy Billy, uh, Billy and it's, Lynch. It sort of follows these stories about his life as told by the people who he knew and who loved him who were at the funeral. Yeah. And it, uh, flashes back in time to several points and sort of creates a portrait of his life, but through the, uh, never quite through his eyes. Um, it's a lovely little, you've already said this today, but it's a lovely little elegiac novel. Um, yes. And it's particularly interesting because of the way that those stories start to get interwoven, the beginning, I think 40 or 50 pages, are really are set right at the wake as people are talking over each other even and telling different stories. And it reminded me a little bit of the beginning of Ashes. Yeah. Yes. Funeral. Mm-hmm. Funeral beginning, yeah. Um, so why don't you talk about bringing this book to us and, and why you recommended it a little bit as a possible companion piece? I actually... I have- love this book um, the first time I read it. I read it, but I was, I always heard of Alice McDermott. I had never read her before until I read this book. Someone gave me At Weddings and Wakes, which is another novel of hers, um, said, I think that you would really like this book, but I, I wouldn't read it. I was kind of afraid to read it because I kind of knew we, I was just long before I was published. I was obviously just writing on my own. Um, I was really afraid to open her books because I was afraid of being scared off. Like, why should I write if she's, she's done this? And it's the same kind of territory we cover, which is Brooklyn, American, Irish. Um, she's on Long Island a lot in this book mm-hmm. as well. So it's sort of the same thing because most of them began in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of the same kinds of characters, the same community. There were even some names. Of course. There were some <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always. They're going to find the same names. Yeah. 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 Irish. I, I, um, yeah. I read the, I read them back to back. Mm. Um, these two books. So I, for a little bit, I was like, wait a minute. Doesn't Bridie. Oh, Bridie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bridie, Bridget, Bridie. Yes. Yes. That's a big one. That's um, true. That's a big one. Yeah. I think the, the real pleasure of this book is really kind of looking for Billy because he, it's as much as people talk about him, it's a lot about the, how they've encountered him in their lives. And when they're talking about him, it really ends up being very self-reflective. Um, I'm curious if you guys felt that as well. Totally. Yeah. He is 
who they want him to be. Completely. I yeah. think very much. They, they're kind of filling in the blanks of this alcoholic, and that's how he is primarily defined. Yeah. Um, and so who is he really? And I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah. In fact, um, I was complaining about this to Drew earlier that I was just like, for a book called Charming Billy... Uh, you don't really get to know him <laughs> at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you don't, you know, he really is very absent um, except for in this, that very, um, I'm, I'm going to use that word again, elegiac. It's so perfect for this book mm-hmm. um, scene of, of them uh, on vacation or uh, I guess, is it a vacation? When, when he comes out to the house? Yeah. When he needs uh, it's a vacation for him. Someone's vacation. Yeah. I guess um, they're on yeah. vacation too. It, it's just like the a beautiful, house, it's like yeah. sun drenched and bright. Like I feel like yeah. it, it's right. just, it's too perfect. It's like everything is golden hued. Right. Uh, the during, war is over. Yeah. But it is a strange book. I kept feeling like I was learning how to read it as I was reading it. Um, because she really switches things up. She, as soon as I was all cozy and ready for th- two, three hundred pages of people talking over each other at a wake, I really <laughs> thought the book was going to continue on in that. I did too. <laughs> really? I was like, that's going to be amazing if she yeah. can do that. But um, and then she changes that, drops yeah. it, and picks something else up. Yeah, yeah. I always admired her her way of telling the story, which is the narrator is the daughter of Billy's best friend and cousin. Uh, I love right. that. It seems right? kind of a sideways, exactly. Yeah. I didn't get it the first time I read it either, I don't think. Like, who was she? I mean, I got it, but I didn't understand what she was really doing with that coming at him from this sort of distance. This is obviously someone who knew him, but she's removed by a generation and she's removed in that way. She's hearing her father's version of him and then she's telling us, the reader. Right. Yeah, the stories are doubly filtered. Right. So Billy lived and then somebody has a story of him and then it's this narrator, and I it, I had no idea who the narrator was for for so long. Right. You don't know comparatively, and I loved the fact that it ended up being this narrator telling this thing who is almost entirely absent, but you can never forget that she's the one who's telling this story versus Danny or Dennis or. Maeve. 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 Yeah. Oh, poor Maeve. The wife, I know. The, the beginning of the novel where they're all talking about how great Eva would, would have been for Billy. And I'm like, wait, Maeve. Maeve is the <laughs> widow. Right there. Right there. <laughs> she can hear you. <laughs> yeah, she <I'm> like, knows. <laughs> she does. But she she seemed to know from the beginning what she was doing. She, I think so. Yeah, but you you yes, do get that do. much later on that you're like, oh, it's okay. Maeve, Maeve knew what she was doing. <laughs> She's okay. This was her way of saving herself. Yes. She chose someone just like her father who needed her in the exact same way as her father. Mm-hmm. And there's oh, a certain heartbreaking courage <laughs> in that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. She's really, I, I almost thought like, it wouldn't have been the same book, but to hear her voice would have been really interesting. So you were saying though, that um, you were scared to read McDermott yeah. because of, did, did, did that change or, or, when you read a McDermott book, are you like, oh yeah, she is doing, she's doing, she's doing the same. better than me. No, <laughs> well, I thought, it's interesting. I saw, I got at Weddings and Wakes and I wouldn't read it for a long time. And then um, I heard that she won the National Book Award and she beat Tom Wolfe. Mm-hmm. He was highly favored to win for A Man in Full, 
which is a huge epic, like Tom Wolf writes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To see, I remember that's what I recall. This the the talk afterwards was sort of this. I don't want to use the word glee, but the sort of satisfaction that this small book won, this quiet book won over this big, heavy, literally epic. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be this sort of like glee in that. I will mm-hmm. use the word glee in that. And so that made me decide I'm going to read this book. And I went and I bought it. And I, I loved it immediately. The, the thought that I've had the most after reading Charming Billy and it's something that I almost can't fully articulate, but it's this idea of how do we remember a person? Mm. This idea that Billy is, he's an alcoholic and he's not a great person. Like as more comes out about Billy, especially in his later years, you start to feel a little more uncomfortable about how charming he can be. And I'm just wondering if either of you started thinking about the way that you tell stories about yourself or about your family after reading this. I definitely felt like there was the, um, I don't know. It's there's, there's the Tom Sawyer of it all of wanting to, uh, you know, be a, be at your own funeral and kind of see what people would say about Mm -hmm. you. But as far as self mythologizing, I don't think that anybody really does that in charming, but I don't feel like they tell stories while people are alive about each other. it takes until afterwards for them to like really remember how those and there's there's also sort of like a, a little bit maybe even not on purpose but like a cautionary thing that alice mcdermott is putting together there that she's just like you know take take a take a look at the people around you while they're around hmm yeah i can see that yeah i was just gonna say a very similar sort of how you tell the story almost depends on how it ends hmm. i think because if billy had taken the pledge and stuck with it either forever or even for several years. But he always just went right back to drinking. He never really stuck with it. He couldn't have ever said to have recovered. I don't think he ever has a real recovery period that I recall in the book right, for any length of time. Uh, the pledge, he goes to the Ireland. The pledge, he goes to Ireland, takes the pledge. To or even, never drink again with, never the, drink again. with priests. Or even AA. Like he yeah, just... He never came. He never really stops drinking for any length of time. It never takes. And after a while, people stop believing that he will be able to do it. So I think in a way his death is, um, I think she says it in the book, it's almost inevitable. Yeah. Finally, it's happened. So I think the myth really is going to come out of um, how you end up. I have something that's sort of a spoiler, but it's sort of not also. So you can skip ahead or not because I think that you find out pretty early on that the, that this happened but yeah. uh halfway through less than yeah so billy um billy was in love with this woman and he's been writing to her and then she stops writing for some reason and he doesn't really know what's going on and then it, he gets told by his best friend that she died even though she didn't um and he's sort of confessing this um his friend is confessing that this happened um and i'm sort of just curious what do you guys think of that lie um do you think that that was a a good lie or a bad lie and how did how did i got very mad at, at um <laughs> did at you Dennis. really yeah I, I thought that i thought that was like inexcusably awful um and it made me it made it very difficult for me to feel sympathetic towards him later on hmm that's interesting i didn't see it coming i will say that it did take me by surprise i remember when i read it but it made sense and there are some things in the book that 
not this book, any book where a twist or a thing you didn't expect, you get angry. Mm-hmm. But this didn't make me angry. I was like, that's what happened. And it made, that's why. And it made sense to me. And I also thought that I understood Dennis's thinking when he was talking about the pity that Billy would have to live with for the rest of his life. His mother and his sisters clucking and fussing and, oh, you poor thing, you were betrayed. Yeah. And he didn't want to see Billy's love for this woman ruined in that way. Mm. So I kind of understood why he would do it. And I think he did it spur of the moment, if I'm recalling correctly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I didn't get angry. That's interesting. No. Yeah, what do you think, Drew? I understand it is, I think, the best way to mm-hmm. say it. Like, I think that there is something arguably even noble in the idea that he he lies out of an altruism, like an, an attempt to, to protect his best friend and to say this horrible thing, I'm, I'm going to actually save you from something that is even worse. Mm-hmm. Knowing that she took your money, she's done this other thing, and that she's not the person you thought she was. And instead, to do like, God to do like the end of the dark night mm-hmm. with that idea that like, this is not, this is not what you deserve. It's what you need. Right. And that, that's a much harder thing to do. And I think to live with too, as the person who's telling mm-hmm. that story, mm-hmm. but I think it shows a, a remarkable amount of care. Mm, it, it, it's sort of, sort it's a, of. it's a dark, <laughs> it's very dark. I don't know. I, I, I saw it as pretty selfish. I thought it was all selfish. Um, but, to, yeah. but maybe this is something that you at home, when you pick up a copy of Charming Billy, you can decide for yourself, is this, is this excusable or inexcusable? <laughs> is he a monster or is he a good friend? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and let's, uh, let's... Well, on that note. Yeah. Well, thank you for recommending Charming Billy. Um, it's it's, it was a it's a great book. Uh, let's talk about other recommendations. Mm. Yeah. Do uh, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll recommend. I read this book in like two sittings, so fast. I loved it. Uh, Carolyn Parkhurst's harmony came Mm. out uh, a couple months ago or last month or something um i read her book the dogs of babel and i loved it but harmony is um i got intrigued by it because she wrote this it's about these um these parents with a kid a kid on the autism spectrum they get sort of taken in to this um camp harmony this like alternative lifestyle where all these families live and they're going to be taken out of society and maybe like in raising these kids outside of society they will be able to thrive Hmm. is the idea and you're following one family but you see the entire camp and it's beautiful and strange yeah it's 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 a great book nice drew uh i would like to recommend a collection of poems actually um it's we're we're in we're in true autumn now and in the way that ashes felt to me like the jacket that you put on on like the first <laughs> cold morning of september um a thousand mornings by mary oliver is a collection of poems that is just like 
it is when the nights start to get dark suddenly really very much sooner and you sort of like you want a fire in the fireplace and you like you're wearing a sweater every day and it just it's a very warm lovely collection i don't read that much poetry uh but i just i was really smitten with this collection in a in just a very simple easy seasonal way Mm -hmm. sounds great yeah Um, kathleen interesting book um daniel woodrow i believe that is his name he wrote winter's bone which was made into a movie with uh jennifer lawrence Mm -hmm. but i read this book of his called the maid's version it is a slim little book and it is amazing the sentences in this book are amazing you will stop and reread them and reread them Cool. It's about the small town where there's an explosion in the dance hall and all these young people are either killed or maimed for life and it's just about, it's really cheerful reading. The holiday <laughs> season. It's about um, the effects it has on the town and the survivors and the family members who only want to know what happened. Was it an accident or was it intentional? And how did this come to be? And, and who did it? And it's one of those books where there's a mystery but you're, the mystery is at the heart of it, but it's okay if it doesn't get solved. I won't say if it does or does not, but it's just the story itself is absolutely beautiful. It's told by the um, the narrator of the story is um, the boy whose great aunt died in the explosion. Mm. He's hearing the story from his grandmother, who's his, her sister. Yeah, it's a really beautiful book, and I have not read anything else by him. I picked this up randomly, and uh, it is beautiful. Cool. It sounds great. Yeah, it really is. I to read that. It feels like a good November book. Oh my god! <laughs> Stop reading seasonally. I really love fall. Okay, I do too. Uh, I do too. W- uh, yeah, well, it it is the best. It's one of the best seasons. One of oh man, can equivocate in both scales against either scale, huh? <laughs> Come in, equivocator. Now I'm just quoting Macbeth. Yeah, I'd stop it. Yeah, it's probably a bad <laughs> idea. Well, that's uh, that's it for us. Thanks so much for coming by, Kathleen. We really enjoyed yeah, having thanks. you. Thanks. This was so fun. Thank you both. This has been really great. Um, and for those of you living at home, go living at home. Everyone lives at their home. For those of you watching at home, <laughs> yeah. I think is what you tried to say, that's which wouldn't have made sense either. <laughs> I don't. I don't, know, I don't understand what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to tell you is, go rate us on iTunes. That's it. Thanks. <laughs> thanks very much. I think your mother would want me to say <laughs> that you should probably not do that. <laughs> and I was like, what's Don't the problem? Stop making out with the mic. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. God. That's a good way to start. Uh, mm. Every time. Thrift shop, rock a little light on the cock, all the kids.